Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. My name is Camille Yurick, and today I will be reading scripture from Romans 12, verse 9 to 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with the people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Right, we're in a series, uh, as Moses said to you today, uh, called Fighting Gravity. And uh, the idea is that someone once said it this way, that uh, we all kind of see ourselves as the star of our own show, where we are the center stage and everybody else is supporting actors and actresses, or maybe props, um, right? That we have this idea that, uh, that kind of life revolves around us. And even as we say that out loud, we kind of know it sounds bad, it sounds really ugly, we wouldn't actually admit that. And yet there's a sense in which we uh, feel as if we are the center of all things and, and everything sort of works around us. Um, every, uh, every fight you've ever had with someone in your family, every fight you've ever had with a spouse, if you're married, like fundamentally I know the fights in our house are about, if you could just see things the way I see things, if you could just think the way I think, if you could just do things the way I do things. Now, what we're not saying is like, I'm the center of everything, but that's kind of what we're saying. And if the other person could just see that, everything would be better, right? It's the root of every kind of conflict we have. And not even just as individuals, we think about communities, um, whether it's communities defined by, uh, by biological family or by religious affiliation or by sort of tribal um, identifiers, that there's a sense, there's a word even uh, uh, called ethnocentrism, which is just this idea that my ethne or my people group or my group is the center of things. That's, t- that's how I tend to operate. So this, this sort of idea that there's, a, there's this gravitational pull to me and mine, that actually is a reality for every human being on the face of the earth. It doesn't matter in what era you were born, in what part of the world you are from, what kind of family that you grew up in, what kind of education you have, or even whether you are aware of this, every human being is a sense subject to this gravitational pull towards me and towards mine. And communities are marked by it, and individuals are marked by it. And even though we know, yeah, I should probably not be so selfish, or I should probably help other people or try to do good things, there is this pull. It seems impossible almost to escape gravity. 
And maybe there are a few people that we would consider heroes like Mother Teresa and whatever that we said, wow, they managed to escape gravity. But the rest of us, I mean, this is just life. The scriptures actually have a term for this. It's called sin. Um, And uh, as I've said to you before, that sin, though it sounds like a negative word, is actually a hopeful word because it's actually a diagnosis. It's a description of what is wrong with me and you. And given that we all know something's wrong, not just out there, but in here, if there's a diagnosis, that's the hope that there might be a cure for this gravitational pull towards me. And sin is, we don't like the word, we, we prefer the word mistake. But like a mistake is when you forget to close the freezer and the ice cream melts. Sin is when you take the Rolo ice cream, eat out all the Rolo bits, so that when your husband comes back to the ice cream, there's just craters. Like that's sin. It's just an example. I, you know, like you knew what you were doing when you did that. Right? Like, there's a thing which, oh, I didn't mean to do it. The other things, you know what you should, I'm joking, right? But, right, like, let's be honest. There's all things that we've done that we knew exactly what we were doing. What do you call something that you planned to do that wasn't right? Even though you said the last time, I'll never do this again. That's not a mistake. That's a bent. That is, a, that is gravity dragging you back to earth. Which is why Jesus as he is presented to us in his four biographies, and all of those biographies are called or came to be called gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news of Jesus, is that he has come not only to save us from sin, to forgive us for that bent that we have, but to actually begin to lead us in a new way of dealing with gravity. That the salvation of Jesus in our lives, and whether you're familiar with that term or not, is not just forgiveness and heaven one day, but actually that Christ has come as a human to show us a new way to live. To actually begin to follow him and live differently than our gravitational pull. But the dirty secret in every church in the world is that it just seems impossible to do. Jesus, again, becomes one of those heroes that somehow seem to escape gravity, but I can't actually live like that. To illustrate it, one author said this, imagine that, um, you know, the Olympic Committee called you one day, your home directly, and said, listen, you have been selected to represent Canada in in the marathon at the next Olympics. And immediately through your mind, you're thinking opening ceremonies. You're thinking those cute little red shorts or whatever. Uh, maybe I can wear long shorts, but maybe I'm going to get a, you know, I'm going to be in the Olympic village. Like I'm going to be on TV. And then all of a sudden it dawns on you what they just said you were going to be asked to do. And here's what he says. Then it dawns on you. Right now you cannot run a marathon. More to the point, you cannot run a marathon even if you try really, really hard. Trying hard can only accomplish so much. If you are serious about seizing a chance of a lifetime, you will have to enter into a life of training. You must arrange your life around certain practices that will enable you to do what you cannot do now by willpower alone. When it comes to running a marathon, you must train, not merely try. This need for training is not confined only to athletics. Training is required for people who want to play a musical instrument or learn a new language or run a business. Indeed, it is required for any significant challenge in life. 
including spiritual growth. Here's the principle. There's an immense difference between training to do something and trying to do something. This is actually the key to begin to fight the gravitational pull in your life and my life is not just trying not to be selfish, but actually training in the practices and in the ways of Jesus. This is something that for many of you, it may have actually escaped you, even though you grew up perhaps in a church tradition where you heard about Jesus all the time. But that actually Jesus was inviting you to follow him, right? That's what he actually, that's the language he used with all of his disciples, which to be a disciple meant to be a follower, to say, come and live life with me. Begin to live life the way I live life. And over time, your life will begin to look more like my life. There's an immense difference between thinking, I just have to try to be better, to try to do better, to try to somehow be like Jesus, and actually training to live like him. And we don't use this word training when we think of the Christian life, and yet that's exactly what Jesus invited us in to do, is follow me and begin to do life the way I do life. In fact, There are practices that have been given to us through Jesus that the church has practiced actually for centuries. And the practice, the spiritual practices are things that we can do by willpower right now that will eventually help us do something that we cannot right right now do by willpower alone. Do you get that? There's things in your life that you want to be, people you want to become. And certainly when it comes to this whole issue of selfishness, and we're going to take the next three weeks to do this, that it's one thing to try to be less selfish is another thing to say, I can't actually do that. I don't actually know how to put others first. My gravitational pull is to me first. But I can do this little thing that if I did it over and over and over again would actually start to help me do the thing that I can't do right now by willpower alone. Do you get that? And so the next few weeks and actually later on this fall, we're going to spend some time saying, what are the practices? What are the ways of life that if we begin to train, as we begin to do them over and over and over again, we will actually find we become the people that we long to be in our heart of hearts. The passage that um, Camille read for us this uh, morning is from Romans chapter 12, and it's where I want to begin this whole matter of training versus trying, and what does it mean to actually practice something? And it's interesting because if you read that passage and it's the first time you've ever saw it or you've read it before, just look at what it says to, to do, okay? To have a sincere love, to be devoted to each other, to honor others above yourself, to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, to bless those who persecute you, to not be proud, to be careful to do what is right, to live at peace with everyone, not take revenge, don't overcome evil, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Just do that. We're good, right? We can just go home now. It feels like one of those lists where like, yeah, that would be nice. Really? Just do that. Just don't be proud. Just bless those who persecute you. Just be joyful, patient, faithful. Just live at peace with everyone. We can read a list like that and go, I know that's the thing I can't do. I don't know how to do that. I try a lot. I try for a day. The next day I forget. And even if you're not aware of your, you think you're trying, uh, the feedback I'm getting from the people around me seems to indicate it's not working. Like what is going on? 
And then in the middle of that whole little passage, and you may have missed it, are these two words. Practice hospitality. There's this whole list of like, be this way, do this way, treat all the people in your life. I won't name the brand of batteries, okay, because that's not. This is going to be a problem. Don't worry, it's just juice. There's nothing sacred about that, okay? All right. Practice hospitality. Now, the word, the word hospitality, when, when it comes to mind or what you'd think about, is this idea of the hospitality industry. I actually used to work in the hospitality industry. We use that to describe, like, services. Like, if you go to a hotel, you go to a restaurant or whatever, there are people who are sort of serving you. This idea, like, hospitality being the way we treat other people in, in restaurants or the professionalization of hospitality. Or maybe we might think of this idea of, like, entertainment. Entertaining other people or, or like, you know, entertainment's big, right? Like all the magazines of how you can do your home and Pinterest, you know, used to be Martha Stewart. Now it's Pinterest, right? Has blown up the world. And so all these ways that you can sort of entertain. But the scriptures actually, it's it's a word we don't use that often. And it's interesting. It's just this little thing that say practice this in the middle of this whole long list that you would say, yeah, it'd be great to be like that. I don't know how to do that. It says practice hospitality. And the Greek word practice is dioko, which means to earnestly pursue something. So there's this idea of doing something over and over and over again, dioko, to, to try earnestly at something. And then the word hospitality is actually a combination of two Greek words, philo, xenia. Now you may, if I say it the other way, xenophobia, right, is the fear of foreigners, right? Xeno is the foreigner, phobia is fear. Hospitality is philoxenia, the love of foreigners. That's the word hospitality. To actually love those who are different from you or who are away from you. It's this idea of actually caring for or hosting or whatever. It is fundamentally about philo, about love for another person. In many ways, we have come to think this idea of hospitality, is, it's actually about, about me, right? Like entertaining is about me, how I look, how I'm able to cook, this new barbecue I bought, or the, all the touches that I made on the tables, or the way we've decorated our house, and all of that stuff. The whole entertaining industry is about me. It's not about you. It's about how I look. And maybe some of us don't entertain because it's about me. Because we don't like the look of our house, or we don't think we're a good cook, or we don't know how to do all of the touches, and so ultimately, because this whole thing has been about me and how I look to other people, and the word hospitality is about the love of others. And it's not just about foreigners, actually, the, 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 um, the use of the word hospitality in the New Testament covers different groups of people. It covers those close to you. It talks about showing hospitality to people who are in your family, like It talks about showing hospitality to those who are not close to you, who are foreigners, who are from another country, another tribe, or another family, or who are not familiar with you. And then it even talks about showing hospitality to those you don't want to be close to, your enemies. It's this little practice of beginning to host, to be kind, to show goodness to people who are close to you, 
people who are not close to you, people who you don't want to be close to, people that are your enemies, people that have hurt you. The scriptures lay out for us, and the Apostle Paul to the words of the church is saying, all of these things about being kind and not being selfish and not being proud and all that, there's a practice, there's something you can do that seems small, but if you do it, if you pursue it earnestly, over time it will begin to change you. It is a practice of hospitality. And the idea of hospitality just really means to to host others, whether it's uh, this idea of food or drink or having them in your home, this idea of like actually is a very sort of practical kind of thing. It relates to just meeting the needs of people, some who are in need of a meal or someone who are in need of being welcomed in, someone who's in need of just a warm place to be on a cold day, someone who's in need of being in a home where they don't have a home. Is this very sort of practical aspect of hospitality. And it's interesting, if you look at the life of Jesus, because we might, honestly, we might step back and go, oh yeah, okay, that big list of the person I want to be. And I'm just supposed to just, this is about having meals with people? This seems kind of a little small thing, isn't it? To like eat together, to have a meal, to have someone over, to host someone. Isn't it? How's that going to actually change me? Well, it's interesting, if you look at the life of Jesus, one of the things that drove the religious people crazy about him was <laughs> with who and how often he was having meals, right? They actually said to the point that he, he had a reputation of being a drunkard and a glutton. How do you get a reputation? Drinking too much, eating too much. How do you get a reputation like that? You're probably doing it a lot. Why did it matter so much for them? Why is that even a thing? In those days, and still in, in many ways still true for our culture today, Jesus, who you eat with, and as you share a meal with someone, you are saying to them, I accept you. Especially if you were the host of the meal. Now, Jesus, in a sense, didn't have a home, but he would often go to other places, but other, he, he became the host of that whole place because people were coming to be with him. So he was sort of the guest of honor, but kind of really the host and permitting who was allowed in the room or not. That's why they were always saying to him, why do you eat with all these people? Don't you know what they're like? There's one story where there's a woman who bursts in the room in the middle of a meal, and Jesus is treating her like actually someone who's a welcomed guest. And everyone else in the room says, this person has a terrible reputation. Don't you know who this is? And Jesus actually began to tell all kinds of stories about what it means for God to welcome people in and how radical the circle is and actually so many parables about banquets and feasts and who's at the table and who's not at the table. And he was constantly trying to poke at this and say, your table represents this idea of who you think is in and who you think is close to God. And he kept redefining that circle for them by the ways he was literally having meals with, the people he was literally eating with. And then as he began to talk about the future, the new heaven and the new earth. Do you know how it describes the new heaven and the new earth? A massive wedding feast. Best wedding I ever went to was a Portuguese marrying an Italian. Oh, my gosh. Like, the food was just, it was, like, off the charts. And then, like, you think you're done eating, and you cannot eat anymore, and at midnight, the seafood table comes out. And then beside that, a chocolate fountain. I thought I was going to pass out. I'm like, I can't eat anymore, but I will. I will. I will do this, right? I pushed through. It was amazing. Think about, like, the best wedding you've ever been to. Like, there's food, there's dancing, there's people that are close to you. You are celebrating love. 
right? The scriptures actually say that heaven is this celebration that goes on forever of the love that God has for his church, where he is the, or Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And I think, receive it, Lord, it is real food, okay? This isn't like some spiritual metaphor, it's actually a feast. It's actually life. And that makes sense because Jesus began to show us what does life with God look like? That when you are at the table with me, Jesus says, you are categorically accepted. And this is why they had so much problem with the people he was eating with. Because to bring someone in, to host them, to eat with them, to break bread with them is to say, I'm for you, not against you. God is for you, not against you. God is offering love and forgiveness and grace to you. And Jesus did that with all of those groups of people. He had meals with his closest friends. He had meals with people he just met, right, that he didn't know. He even had meals with his enemies. He had meals with the ones who he knew were judging him. They would invite him. He would go and he would be with them. He was constantly offering grace even to the ones, even to Judas, you know, who was going to betray him. He's, He's actually having a meal with him. And even in the last moments, trying to convince Judas not to go do what he had planned to do. Jesus eating meals with those close to him, those not close to him, those that others say you shouldn't even be close to them. That this little practice of hospitality is actually a core part of what the good news of Jesus is about. And I would submit to you that as we begin to do this over and over and over and over again, these two little things, practicing hospitality, earnestly pursue the love of others around the meal in a home, or as we are hosting them with ourselves in our life, over time we actually begin to become more like Jesus who lived that way. Which is to say this, that you are the glue through the hospitality you do. You are the glue through the hospitality you do. I think for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that we're meant to have a role in our neighborhoods that is like the social glue. Because I don't know about you, but most people live quiet lives of desperation. We live, in a sense, with our homes. The, the ideal home is one that is disconnected from any other home, right? That's the most expensive home are the detached homes. The goal in your home is to have everything that you need in your home so that you don't ever need to ask somebody for anything else. So you have all of the equipment that you need, as someone pointed out, uh, who sort of grew up in an African village and coming to North America saying, like, that's weird that you have 50 homes on a block and you have 50 lawnmowers on those 50 homes. Like, in, where I grew up, you have one lawnmower and everybody shares it because it's community, because that's how you live. But we actually have painted the ideal life as living independently of everyone else. And I think that's actually a picture of what is going on inside so many human hearts that there are people in your communities who seem fine. They drive nice cars. They seem to be able to afford their life. They seem to be happy and doing whatever they're doing. And yet inside there's a loneliness that we as Jesus followers in our neighborhood are meant to be the glue for that community. That we bring a presence of bringing people together in a way that makes it stick. That there's a social glue And we do that by being hosts. And that isn't just about having people in our home, but it's the way we live in the neighborhood. It's about being willing to go into other people's homes. 
It's about actually going and asking them to borrow an egg or whatever it is. It's actually about breaking down the barriers that separate us so much in our relationships. I believe we're meant to be the glue to the hospitality we do in this community. That the more we have meals together, the more we are connecting together, the more people come into this community and feel, oh, there's something going on in here that's unique. There's something more than just a bunch of people who happen to share some common beliefs and come and sing together and listen to a sermon on Sunday. There's a fabric, there's a glue, there's a stickiness to the community that happens when we have an attitude of hospitality. Where the meals we have with one another and the time we spend with one another and the drinks we have with one another and the way we interact with each other in and outside of our homes is sending a message about what we believe the gospel to be. And it makes the community sticky. And I also believe it is the way we actually bring forgiveness and healing. You know, when we, when we get hurt by each other, which always happens, it's inevitable in community. And the more the community functions like a family, the deeper the hurts go when that happens. Right? It's going to happen. And when we withdraw from relationship with those we've been hurt by, what do we do? We continue to rehearse the hurt. We have the imaginary conversations in our mind, the things we would say or should have said or are going to say, and emails we write we'll never send. But all of those things, the longer we are away from each other, we'll talk to other people about the hurt, and it will begin to form and form. But what happens when we actually say, I'm going to get across the table from this person and have a drink and share a meal, have a coffee, or be in their home or have them in my home? The potential for forgiveness begins to emerge, right? Because we are breaking the distance. We are coming together. We are creating glue, creating stickiness that would somehow bring us back together. Whether that's in conflict we are having with others or for others we know who are in conflict that somehow we would be the glue between them to bring them back together. That There's something that happens over a meal and in, as we share life together that is far more powerful than any other ways we might interact. Jesus seemed to do so much of his changing work in people's lives over the meal. So what does that look like? You know, um, some of you are really great at this in terms of like you're great cooks, you put a lot of effort into your homes, your designers, you, you're good at creating space. Open that up to as many people as you can. And it's not about you, right? Like some of us who are good at this, maybe there's the inclination to go, oh, this is about me, like this is about entertaining. It's like, no, this is actually about them. I love there's friends of ours in our church who we've gotten to know really well over the last couple of years, but as they first sort of came into our home, she, she said uh, a little while later, she's like, you know, it was so nice to come into your home and realized you hadn't really cleaned for us. It's like, oh, yeah, well, we did, but <laughs> apparently... <laughs> I mean, it was so awesome because we laughed about it. And she said, you know, I've, I sort of grew up feeling like you had to, your house had to be a certain way in order to have people in. And I actually think they're amazing hosts. And they've hosted us. And we've, we feel that sense of, of home when we go into their place. And she said, it just freed me from feeling like my home had to look a certain way, had to do a certain thing. Because she said, that's what I always thought it meant to have people in your home. So some of you that are great at this, be free to be great at it for the sake of another person. Philoxenia, for the love of another, not the reflection on yourself, good or bad. Some of you say, I'm a terrible cook. Well, order pizza and get bag, bag salad is like the best invention ever, right? Like how, 
And if you say, well, I don't even know about that, or, you know, I got young kids, or our house is full, and it's kind of crazy, then buy ice cream and have people over at like 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. Because this isn't actually about how you look. It's about creating a space that others feel welcome to come in. And you may say, oh, my house is too small, but I know someone who's got a great house. You may say, hey, can I bring food and we'll host something at your place? You don't have to do anything. Don't even clean. I'm coming over. What does it look like to say, how, how do we bring that into each other's homes? How do we release each other to actually be for the other person? One of the reasons we are constantly encouraging us as a community to be in home groups is because we believe that in homes, as we relate together, interact together, we begin to share life and we begin to love those who are not like us. One of the ways we do home groups in our church is by geography, where you live, not by affinity, who you like hanging out with. It's good to be in affinity groups. It's good to have people in the same age or life stage or whatever that you get along with and have common interests. And all of that's great. That's part of community. But hospitality, philoxenia, the love of Jesus, the love for the foreigner, friends, in fact, isn't that the love of God to us? We were foreigners, separated from him, unknown. We were enemies of God. And he came for us, all the way to us. No stairway to heaven up. He came down. And so what does it mean to actually, in our community, begin to say, well, you know, I don't really connect with that person that well, and like, that's okay. God may actually have a profound role for you in their lives to love them like Jesus loves them. It isn't about actually whether I feel close to them or not. This is about loving those that I'm close to, loving those that I'm not close to, loving those that I don't want to be close to. It is this radical kind of community. We say, well, that's hard. It is in a sense, but it's actually not difficult to do to be in a home with another person, to go for coffee with another person, to have someone over for a meal. That's actually not hard. The thing that's really hard to do is not be proud and to think, you know, forgive your enemies and love others first and all of that list. Like what's really hard is to be joyful and patient and faithful and to bless those who persecute and live at peace. That's hard. But having a meal with someone, that's not hard. And that's the thing you do. And as you do it over and over and over and over again, as you earnestly pursue it, as you practice it, you begin to become the person that you think is impossible to be. Isn't that beautiful? It's the way of Jesus. It's the small practices over and over and over again. Not things that, we used to see things, right? Like in this thing that if I do those things, God will love me more. No, no, God loves you no matter what. The spiritual practices are not about earning God's love. It's just becoming more like God. We don't need them to do them for God to love us but we do them to become more like the one who loves us. These little practices over time. And, and what I, as I was thinking about this, you know, and, and even as Jen and I have done this imperfectly over time, and it was interesting when we got married, you know, she was like, oh, no, when I became the pastor. She's like, oh, gosh, like, I'm the pastor. Like, does that mean, like, I host all the baby showers? She's like, because I'm not good at that. I don't think I could do that. I'm like, no, you just do whatever you want to do. Um, but we both love people. And we've figured it out over time and saying, like, how does this work for us? And how does it not need to work for us? It doesn't need to look like this. It needs to look like who we are because we love having people in our homes. We love being with them. It isn't about how great we are at entertaining or whatever. And so we just found the simplest meals that we know how to do. And we figured out that, like, she's better before people come because she can't really multitask. Um, so when people come, she just starts talking to them. So then I kind of take over, which I love. And I actually find I love doing that stuff when I come home from work. It just is a stress reliever for me. And we both love being with people. And so we figured it out in our home. What does that actually look like? 
And we're still working it out. And as you do this over time, what begins to happen in your lives? Well, first of all, you begin to focus more on people and less on tasks. Because it's not about you. It doesn't matter whether the food tastes good or not. You know, start easy, start slow. This is actually about the individuals coming to your home. And as you begin to practice hospitality, you begin to focus more on people and less on tasks. Secondly, what happens is your life starts to be impacted by people who are different from you. This is the reason God brings foreigners, people who are not like you, into your life. Because you are changed by being around them. There are people who are not like you, and you do actually need to be more like them. They have personalities and gifts and spiritual gifts and ways of interacting with you that your life and your family or your marriage desperately needs. And as you bring them in, you begin to be changed and complemented, in a sense, by them. The other thing that happens is your home, your place, becomes a refuge for people who are in desperate need of some place that feels like home. Right? People may have houses, but they may not feel at home anywhere. And as you begin to practice hospitality, as people walk across the threshold of your home, as they spend time, there are people whose I just feel like when I walk into their home, my shoulders just go down. Like I just feel like I can be myself. I, whatever cares I had when I walk in, they're gone. And it's not because of the paint color on the wall. Like you got to know it's just lost on me, that stuff. It's who they are. It's how they greet you in the door. It's that you know that they want you to be there. There's something that begins to happen. You provide a refuge for people who are in desperate need of it, and we all need it. And you actually provide, fourthly, the opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation to happen. The more often we eat meals together, the less likely grudges can take root and get a hold over a long period of time. And sometimes the way we need to break them is to say, I don't even know how to, I was talking to someone the other day, and there was a rift that was going on for a while, and they said, I didn't even know how to, do, how to fix this. We didn't, couldn't even go back in time and have the conversation again. They finally just reached out and said, can we have coffee? And in a half an hour, a multi-year thing was gone. How does that happen? How does that happen in your life? I'll tell you, it is impossible without the Spirit of God. These spiritual practices, you know, the, the author I quoted earlier goes on to say in his book, this, is, this isn't like powerboating, where you crank up your motor and you're going to go wherever you need to go and you're going to get there and you're going to become that person. He said it's like sailing. You go out into the middle of the water. You practice your hospitality. You're hoisting the sails. I don't know much about sailing. Okay, this, I'm sure you do something like this. I don't know. But you cannot bring the wind. Only God does that. But you go out faithfully over and over and over again into places that seem like there's no wind blowing here. And you go and you practice hospitality and you hoist those sails and you do that over and over and over again. And God begins to bring the wind. It's how the Spirit works in our lives. And so part of the reason we're doing this right now is we are about to head into the three and a half months of the year where we actually talk to the people in our neighborhoods, right? Because everybody comes out from hibernating. There, there is a high leverage point for relationships in the next few months in your life. Maybe with the people you're around or the people you're playing sports with or the people your kids are playing sports with or the, um, you know, the vacation you might go or where you might be or this place you go every year, they end up seeing the same people. There's like a high potential for relationships and what is that going to look like in your life? And so these three little words, meet, eat, and repeat, okay? Meet, eat, repeat. It's simple. 
You repeat it because it's something you practice. It's sometimes we reach out to someone and it didn't go well. And we're like, oh, I guess that was a bust. Giving up on that. <laughs> repeat. It's a practice. It's a way of life. It is becoming close to those we are not close to. Or perhaps you hold out the olive branch to someone where there's been some distance or whatever, and it isn't received or it's kind of awkward or it's rebuffed at first. Repeat. Don't give up. Do this again and again and again. And this isn't about doing this with everybody that you know, but probably there's one or two that you just know they, di- they just seem to feel like alone or they don't seem to have a smile on their face very much or someone where there's been some odds or just someone in this church family feel like, yeah, I feel like I, I need to know them more. They're a house I could crash <laughs> and tell them not to clean and I'll bring the food. Meet, eat, repeat. And you ask the Spirit, where, where do you want me to, where's this place that your wind is going to blow and I'll, I'll get there and I'll put the sail up. Tony's going to come in a moment and break the communion bread for us. This is one of the reasons we do this meal. In, in the early church, the bread and the wine were a, were a weekly meal for those especially who couldn't have, didn't have the money to afford regular meals. They were able to come and eat we, we've taken sort of communion and we've turned it into this mystical, privatized, somehow sacrament thing that I do, and I'm hoping something positive is happening while I take this thing. It's a meal. It's a symbolic of Jesus saying to you, you are categorically accepted. You are with me. That's why in some traditions it's called the host, because he is the host of the meal. And he says, come. See, Jesus does for us in the communion meal what we are meant to do is we share hospitality with one another. He shares with those that are close to him, hey, reminder of my love for you. He shares with those that are not close and saying, hey, I came for you too. And so even if you've never actually taken communion before, we say, Jesus, I want to believe that your forgiveness and your love and your grace is for me too. It's an invitation. And Jesus offers the meal to those who have hurt him. He offers the meal to those who need forgiveness. I remember that for some reason when I grew up, and I know nobody ever taught me this, but I had this idea that if I had sin in my heart that I couldn't take the communion meal, which is totally backwards. That's why I desperately need it. Right? It shouldn't keep you away from the table. Jesus says, hey, I am for you, not against you. I am offering you forgiveness and grace in this moment right now. So come. So Tony's going to come and break that bread for us and pray for us and invite you to come and share in the meal that Christ has for you today.